All right. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, hope you have your Bible with you. We'll, we'll look at some scripture together. Hope this encourages you today as we uh, continue to go through our uh, New Testament reading plan for 2021. How many of you are keeping up, doing pretty good? All right. So this week uh, we were to um, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And then we were to jump over to Acts chapter 19, which was today's reading. And then we jump tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, to 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, and 3. So I'm going to go through all of these. Now, if you do, as we're going through this reading, keep in mind the reading plan is kind of following Paul's missionary travels. And so as he's moving from one city to another, uh, that's kind of how this reading plan, it, it's trying to keep us chronologically flowing with how things worked in his, in his journey. So uh, let, me, let me pray with you and then we'll, we'll look at some things. Father, we do thank you today for the, the freedom and the blessing to be able to gather here together. It's so good, God, for us to, to, to be together, to fellowship around your presence and your word. And we just thank you, Lord, for one another. Thank you for your church and for you counting us faithful to call us and to enable us to serve you the way that you do. We just, we just want to be effective and faithful for you, Lord, more, more all the time as we pray and abide in Christ that you would bless us and work through us for your glory. And so we thank you for your word today and pray that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 is where we're going to pick up. And, and so th these are Paul's final words uh, to the church at Thessalonica. And if you remember, he'd ministered there, had much success uh, and uh, because of Jewish opposition, uh, he was run out of town, had to flee for his life, went down to Berea, and uh, you remember he escapes out of there and, and uh, leaves Silas and Timothy behind. He eventually gets over to Corinth where these two brothers eventually meet him, and there he writes while he's in Corinth. It's there that he writes the letters to Thessalonica. So when you remember when when Timothy and Silas reunite with him in Corinth, Timothy says, hey, Paul, let me tell you about some things that are happening at Thessalonica since you left. And so Paul writes the first letter. And he tells Timothy, he says, go back up there, take it to him, which was no small, you, you talk about serving the Lord, and that's day to travel down where they were in, in Athens, go south, and then to come back up, sail and then travel on foot back to Thessalonica to deliver the letter. And he takes the letter, tied, Timothy takes that letter back up there and they all read it and he, they certainly talk to Timothy and he encourages them. And so he leaves the letter there and then he travels all the way back on foot, then gets on a ship, goes back down south, comes up to Athens and travels back on foot to Corinth and Paul, right, Paul, you can imagine, says, well, how did it go? When they read the letter, what did they think? How did they respond? And Timothy says, well, it was pretty good, but 
there's still some questions. And so Paul writes another letter and he says, Timothy, go back up there. So <laughs> he gets, does the same thing, gets back up into the city of Thessalonica. Then he travels back and, and this time stays with Paul. Paul, we know, it was, the Acts says that he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. Stays there 18 months, just discipling believers, teaching them scriptures, teaching them to witness, teaching them how to function as a church, establishing leaders. So he stays there 18 months. And, uh, and so that's the background of Thessalonians. And this is the second letter. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, let's finish this. His final words in chapter 3 are, his, uh, he requests prayer. Look there at the beginning of chapter 3. He requests prayer, and he specifically asks them to pray this. Pray that the word of God will advance swiftly, and, and so that God will bless his word, it will spread, and, and then he also asks them to pray that God would deliver them from hostile, unreasonable men. He's, he's experienced a lot of persecution, uh, mental, emotional, and great physical suffering. Uh, from from uh, from those who oppose the gospel, and so any time that we gather as a church and we study the word, uh, we preach the word, we gather for worship, uh, we we want we we, we trust that God's going to bless His word. I love Isaiah fifty five. You, you remember that passage where He says, "As the rains come down from heaven and water the earth," right? And the snow comes down, and and it gives, and it causes seed to grow, and it for, uh, replenishes and causes the earth to flourish. So Isaiah says, "So shall my word be." God speaking, "My word will not return void; it'll always accomplish everything that I intend to accomplish." And I heard, uh, just to encourage you a little bit, I was encouraged. I heard this weekend there was a uh, a family here that. Uh, Heard Brother Miller speak Saturday night about God's providence, and that family went out, and it greatly blessed them. I didn't know this at the time, but through that that time and some things that were shared from the Word, this lady had an opportunity to um, to share with her neighbor, to pray with her, and share the gospel with her. And so, because she was just encouraged by something that she'd heard uh, this weekend, so God's faithful to His Word, Amen. And so he prays uh, for the word to advance, deliver us, and then expresses great confidence in God that God would guard them and uh, keep them obedient to doing the things that he called them to do. And he, Paul wants them to remain loving and patient with each other. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you look at verse 6 through 15, just some admonitions. These are some final words, verses 6 through 15. So Starting in verse 6, he says, withdraw. So he's writing to Christians in the church, and he tells them to withdraw from who? Does he tell them to withdraw from non-Christian sinful people? Who does he tell them to withdraw from? from? From other Christians. Now, withdraw from other Christians who are what? Walking disorderly. What, is, what does that mean? Uh, you know, 
brothers and sisters in Christ who are in sin, living worldly, sinful, disorderly lifestyles. He says, withdraw from them. Uh, Go down to verse 11. Uh, Evidently these, and he uses the word still in this context of the word busybodies. What do you think of when you think of a busybody? A busybody. Yeah, uh, somebody that's uh, not real focused, doing a lot of things, stirring up things. I think of somebody who's just. Uh, the, you remember the the Old Testament story when when uh, when David got into trouble with Bathsheba. You remember that story? He sinned, right? Uriah's wife and took Bathsheba. You remember that whole story begins with a verse that says, "In the spring of the year." When kings went out to war, David was where? He stayed home on the roof. He wasn't where he should have been, wasn't where God had, he needed to be, and he was idle, busybody, just, and he got into trouble. And so there are those uh, uh, brothers and sisters who are not focused, not doing the work of the Lord, idle, busybodies. And so he says here in verse 6 to withdraw from. Look down at verse 14. He he says the same thing. uh, Do not keep company with the disobedient. So believers who are disobedient, believers who are disorderly, who are busybodies. Um, So what... Does that make sense? Sometimes we think that as Christians, the people that we're to stay away from are non-Christians. These, those who don't know Christ, who live uh, kind of a fleshly lifestyles, who uh, in sin, the Bible doesn't tell us to withdraw from them. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says the opposite. It says we're to withdraw from brothers and sisters who are disorderly, busy body, out of step. Right? So, uh, just, why might that be? Why would we, well, let me go back to the second. The reason we don't want to withdraw from non-Christians is because those are the people we're trying to reach. Why does a non-Christian live a certain kind of lifestyle that's contrary to biblical doctrine. It's because they're lost. And so we want to engage with them in order to share the gospel with them, to love them, to try to reach them for Christ. We don't want to engage from them. In fact, uh, go with me to Romans chapter 5. Look at, look at what, uh, or not Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Are you familiar with this? Uh, chapter 5. Look at verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 9. Paul says, I, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Well, okay, that makes sense. Verse 10, but he clarifies this. I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother or a sister who is what? Who is sexually immoral or covetous and idolatrous. So are there Christians who still live uh, pretty worldly lifestyles? Yes, there are. And Paul says we're to withdraw from them 
and we'll see this as we go through the purpose uh, through First Corinthians, and it's so that 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 God would would the withdrawing, the separation would be a form of discipline to try to bring them to their spiritual senses. So um, uh, there, there, it's 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 God's, you know. It's all for the purpose of advancing the gospel uh, and to, the, to non-Christians, and it's also for the purpose of helping Christians who are out of step to get in step. Uh, Galatians 6, even for a, a Christian who is in sin, Galatians 6 talks about the leaders, those who are uh, pretty mature and solid, to go to, non, go to believers, other Christians who are overtaken in trespasses and sin, and it says to do that gently in love to try to restore them. And so um, uh, just some admonitions there. Um, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I also like verse 8 where Paul says, he tells him, I want you to remember our example and to work hard. I think it's good for Christians to work hard. We need to be hard workers. In the church, in the workplace, we need to, we need to be good workers. Uh, I've often thought that um, if you filled out a job application and you put down you were a Christian, that ought to be a a green flag for the employer. That ought to be oh well, if this this person's a Christian, I definitely want to hire them because I know if they're a good Christian, they're Christian, they know Christ. They're going to have a strong work ethic. They're going to be conscientious. They're going to love people. They're going to be a blessing to the workforce. They're going to know how to get along with people. So if there's any in the world, uh, employ, even secular employers ought to think highly of Christians, that we'd want to we'd hire them. Now, I know in most job applications, they don't, you know, that's against the law. You're not supposed to ask people about their religious affiliation background, not discriminate about this. But I'm just saying, if that came out, that ought to be a, a green flag for somebody saying, this is the kind of person I want to hire. Because Christians have a work, good work ethic. Um, Paul models that. Uh, he says, remember my example, how I worked among you. Look at, look at verse 10. What does verse 10 say? About pertaining to work. If you don't work, you don't eat. So uh, there is a strong uh, teaching in Scripture that Christians are to work, to work hard. Now, the only thing I would say about that is assuming they can find work. Right, and um, and and so that's a that's a big thing. So not everyone who's going through some difficulty sometimes it's because necessarily because they're lazy. Sometimes, um, and we've gone through times like that in the our economy, where sometimes it's hard to find work. And then what we're also dealing with today in the economy, it's hard to find work where you can make a living salary. So even jobs that play, pay $15 an hour, well, $15 an hour doesn't sound like too bad, but if you're married and you've got a family, uh, what does $15 an hour come out per week? $600 a week? Well, and so if you make $600 a week and you pull out, what, at least 25% of that for taxes, that means you, you're going home with $450 a week. $450 a week sounds like pretty good, but if you've got a wife and a mortgage and a couple of kids, it's... Pretty tough, pretty tough, and and so these jobs that uh, you know where people start out and they can make higher salaries and incomes are they're getting harder to find. 
And so the idea is we don't want to work, make our own way, but there's some people who are working. Uh, we, uh, I'm pretty familiar with this um, the last several years, uh, and I'm sure it's the same, same here in New Albany. I had a lot of experience in a church where we helped people with food and sometimes utility bills and medical bills, prescriptions and different things like that. And a lot of the times it, it wasn't the people we were helping, it wasn't because they were lazy people and didn't work. A lot of, a lot of the ones we saw more all the time, it was uh, young couples a lot of times who were both working. Sometimes they would work two jobs and they were getting by, they were making ends meet, but if there was a major car repair, a major medical, something that would happen out of the ordinary some month, it, they, just, they just couldn't do it. They just, they just needed help. So just need to be careful that we're not too judgmental on all of that. Does that make sense? So, uh, and then the last thing he says to them in verse 13 is, and I, and I like this great verse, don't grow weary in well-doing. Stay with it. Keep your hand to the plow. Um, first, uh, second Corinthians, uh, Paul writes in his second letter, which we'll get to, he said, don't faint. Don't lose heart. Don't get discouraged. And so let's come back to this. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Any of you, do any of you ever just, you're serving the Lord and you just kind of get weary, you get tired? I hope you do. I hope, that, I hope that your service to the Lord is requiring something of you. Uh, I got to tell you, this, this weekend, come Sunday afternoon, I was pretty well shot. <laughs> you know, went home Sunday afternoon and, and sat down and because uh, had some meetings after church and, and after the weekend with everything that was going on, I went home Sunday, got home and finally sat down, took my shoes off and, and I was just, whew, Took a breath, and it was good to sit. But it was a it was it was a good tired. Do you know what I mean? When you when you serve, some of you la- some of you ladies ever come up in the kitchen. You're on your feet here preparing food for a family, and you're up here working for several hours. And it's a good work, isn't it? But when you get home, you're like, Whew, it's good. To sit down. Take those. Your dogs start barking, right? You take those shoes off, and your feet, you, you know, so you get a little tired. But it, but we stay with it. Because it's, it's making a difference, loving and caring for people and doing it all for God's glory to advance the gospel. So don't grow weary in well-doing. Stay with it. Uh, second, second Timothy 4, uh, run the race. Finish the course that you'll receive uh, an unfading crown of glory that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give you to you someday. And you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. You, you don't grow weary and well-doing. Those of you who are teaching, those of you who are here serving, have some leadership response, you just stay with it, all right? I'm not, um, uh, there's, you, don't find, you don't find retirement in the Bible. You know, we, don't, we don't spiritually retire. We just continue to retool and, and continue to say, God, use me. The outward man might be getting a little tired and getting a little weaker, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. So we just got more wisdom, more experience. Our prayer life is stronger. Our faith is stronger as we walk with the Lord. So we don't grow weary in well-doing. And we, we trust that the best is, is in front of us. Acts 19. So 2 Thessalonians finished up both letters. Acts chapter 19. So let me give you a little background. We'll touch on just a couple things here. 
You remember Acts chapter 18, and uh, uh, Paul and Silas uh, and Timothy, uh, they, after they're reunited, they stay in Corinth for 18 months, and, and they're ministering the word, and they're, and they're having great success. But in chapter 18, verse 18, they decide to make their way back home, to go back to Antioch. And so uh, one of the things I, I like that is they go back and revisit the city of Ephesus very briefly. And Paul, uh, Priscilla and Aquila travel with them. And, and Paul has Priscilla and Aquila remain in Ephesus. He assigns them to stay there. And after he's gone, uh, they meet a guy named Apollos. And they disciple Apollos. Apollos is a believer, but he, he, he's not real up to speed on everything doctrinally. So they disciple Apollos. And then they send Apollos out to Corinth. So I, oh, it's kind of a cool picture. Paul, he meets with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And they're ministering together. He's pouring into them, discipling them. He leaves. They stay in Ephesus. And then they begin to disciple somebody else, Apollos. And then Apollos leaves Ephesus and he goes to Corinth, goes back to where, where they, Paul and Silas and Aquila, all of them were. So you just see this picture of these guys and the churches, is, they're reproducing, they're discipling. How do we do that at Hillcrest? How do we disciple other people here? Well, I, I think discipleship is more than a program. I think discipleship is a lifestyle. I think to some degree what we're doing here today is discipleship. We're all growing stronger in the Word. Sunday school classes are discipleship. Uh, serving outside, doing things in the community. We're discipling people. I think discipleship is more caught than taught. And discipleship is not just a class where you go to a class and, and then you're discipled. It's a lifestyle. And so you, you think back before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, whatever age you were, um, you had to learn things. Um, Non-Christians uh, don't know the Bible, so there's a learning curve there, a discipleship curve there. Non, especially, especially when adults can say, non-Christians are not used to praying with other people. How many of you uh, found it a little bit difficult to pray openly with other people? Any of you find, experienced a little bit of that? Wasn't, it just wasn't your first nature. It's, it's a spiritual nature. So learning to pray with other people openly. Uh, learning to talk about Jesus. Uh, you know, that's, that's, just, that's a process. Learning to be open with your faith. Learning to worship and praise the Lord. That's, that's part of being a disciple. And it doesn't happen automatically. It's, it's kind of learned. It's kind of acquired. And so surrounding yourself with people who can model that. That's why 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And I remember the first time I read it, I thought, I don't want anybody to imitate me. I want everybody to imitate Jesus. And what I've learned that in the church, one of the ways people grow is their spiritual role models. And so you as a mom and a dad, you try to provide a spiritual role model to your own kids as you're raising and discipling them. And it's the same thing is true in the church. So it's all part of discipleship. And it's just a good picture there. So uh, 
Paul and Silas, um, they eventually get back to, and Timothy get back to Jerusalem, then they go back to Antioch, their home church, they rest up, and then in chapter 18, verse 23, um, they go back on their third missionary trip, which brings us to Acts, or, uh, to Acts chapter 19. And they, when they launch out on their third trip, they go back and again revisit some churches. They find themselves back in Ephesus. And when they're in Ephesus, they hear some things about the church at Corinth. And so while Paul is in Ephesus, that's when he writes 1 Corinthians. Um, he writes this letter because he hears some things about the church. And, and so that's, that's what you see here in Acts chapter 19. Um, and it's, Acts chapter 19 is really about uh, Paul's ministry on this third trip when he's back in the city of Ephesus. Uh, the only thing that I would point out here, uh, there's some doctrinal confusion about the Holy Spirit and baptism and different things there in Acts 19. So you, can, you and I can be sure that Paul addressed those issues. There was lots of opposition, lots of increased growth. People are coming to faith. And in fact, in Acts chapter 19, if you look at verse 18, it says, many believe. And in verse 20 of Acts 19, it says, and the word of God is growing, it's prevailing. Many are coming to faith. And uh, Paul eventually, it's from there that he writes the letter, he eventually leaves Ephesus, travels back up north through Macedonia, comes back down to the south, around the Isthmus of Athens, and then eventually makes his way back to Corinth. And so uh, he, he's, he's there. But this letter, uh, uh, and I think one of you mentioned uh, 1 Corinthians. So let's talk about 1 Corinthians. Uh, I, I, I love this letter. Um, it's a, it's a, has some great spiritual insights that are applicable for us. Uh, there's certainly timely, timely messages here in 1 Corinthians. And I, I would say, the, if someone were to ask me, what is the main message of 1 Corinthians? I, I would say it's an issue over worldliness. Do, do you, we, we're to be in the world as Christians, but not of the world. And so when you think of, of a Christian and worldliness, what do you think of when you hear the phrase worldliness? Worldly. Okay, things, things of the world. First John tells us as believers we're not to love the world nor the things of the world. If John says, if anyone loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Um, so what are, what are some things of the world that we, if we're not careful, we can love? Can you think of some examples? Things that we're, you know, that we're not to, we're not to and we're talking about we're not to put before God. Think there's any things that we as Christians today, we as a church today, put before the Lord? Think, think there's, can you think, can you think of anything? Sports, jobs, jobs, money, money materialism, 
new cars, new house, sports teams, all this stuff. You just, just, you know, we're living like this is our best life now, like this is all there is. This is not our best life now. This is, this is temporary. Uh, in your where you live, do any of you when you come through the front door, do any of you have a little foyer area? Maybe a little coat closet in the foyer or something like that. Minnie and I, the house we're renovating, uh, we, we we there was no we put in a little coat coat closet in the in the, where we when we're remodeling this house we're putting that in there. So, but that's the foyer, and we've got a little area there, and then there's this landing, and there's stairs. You go upstairs, or but but think about a foyer. If I was to come and visit you in your home, would we stay in the foyer? Would you keep me in the foyer? Would you pull in a couple of chairs and we just all get a cup of coffee and sit in the foyer? Would we do that? No. Where, if you really think about hospitality, where would you take me? I hope. Huh? Into the den and maybe even in the kitchen. Right? That'd even be better. So I always think about, you know, this life right now is the foyer. This is just a foyer. This is just temporary. We just, we just hang in our coat in here and stop and we're just passing through. This, this is not it. And if we're not careful, we can start living worldly Christians' lives and just and think like the foyer is all there is. That was kind of the problem with the church at Corinth. The, the city of Corinth was one of the largest known cities of the world. It was under, um, under probably only second to Rome itself. It was under Roman rule, Roman occupation, steeped in, in Hellenism, Greeks, Gnosticism, philosophy, learning, education. You, maybe you guys heard of the Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, all these guys. And so it was a city of great learning, great wealth. It was on a, on a, on a, a, a water area there, which it was a, a great, it was a highly great uh, roadway system there, shipping system, ports there. It was just a very prosperous, educated uh, city steeped in all kinds of paganism. Did any of you ever study Greek mythology? Who was the father of all Greek gods? You remember? Zeus, right? And then Aphrodite and Hermes and all these, all these Greek. They had all kinds of gods. Paul has dressed that. Some of you see a little bit of that in, in when he's speaking in Athens. He says, oh, I perceive that you're a religious group. Uh, you have all these altars to all these different gods. And so Corinth was like that, except it was an extremely wealthy, wealthy city, steeped in paganism, great temples, worship temples, pagan temples. And so when people got saved in Corinth, think about all the baggage they bring with them. Worldly baggage. Used to thinking a certain thing away, believing certain things. And so when you come to faith in Christ, all that change begins to change. Uh, morally, well, all that stuff begins to change. And so you, you got these Christians coming to faith in Christ they, out, of, out of that kind of culture. And so they come into the church and there's a new message Faith comes by hearing, hearing. So they're hearing the message, the word of God. And so it's demanding change. Someone told me long ago as a Christian, if there's, if there's nothing that you and I ever read as Christians that seems outrageous or very demanding to us, 
as we continue to live in Christ, then we're not hearing from the Lord. Right? The, the, the Word of God always ought to be making demands, claims, challenging us. Um, and so you have these Christians in that kind of culture coming out of the world, but the world's still pulling on them. And so even though they had come to faith in Christ and gathered for a church and stuff, they were still doing some things and getting caught up in some things that were sinful. And so if, if I had to say what the real theme of this is, Paul is addressing uh, a Christian church full of believers in Corinth, but we're still living like the world. And he, in this first letter, he, he rebukes uh, division, strife, um, there's sexual immorality in the church. He, uh, it's so bad, there's a, uh, a, a man and his son is being physically intimate with his dad's wife and the whole church knows about it and they just ignore it. And there's 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 6 there's lawsuits. Christians in the church are suing each other. And there's, there's abuse over their worship. Some to get some, uh, there's factions in the church. Some of them won't even take the Lord's Supper together. The rich, some of those who are more wealthy in the church didn't like some of the poorer people coming in and they didn't like ministering to them, helping them financially over the meal. And so they started meeting privately away from certain members of the church and taking the Lord's Supper. And then some of them were, when they were gathering together, getting drunk before they took the Lord's Supper. I mean, it just, thing is, and then there was issues of worship and all kinds, where he dresses tongues and abuses. He says, believers are coming in here and your corporate worship services are chaotic. In fact, believers think you're, uh, unbelievers, they don't understand what you're, they think you're crazy. They're, so all, just all kinds of issues in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to address those. And there's some great application for us. So let's, for the next couple minutes, let's look at some things that Paul says to the church at Corinth. And we'll, we'll go through these. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, let's look at the, how he addresses them. Because this is, this is pretty significant. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle. What does the word apostle mean? It means one who sent, messenger, sent one. By the way, it's the same word that in, definite, in meaning is the word angelos, where we get in the news, if you read about an angel, an angel is a messenger, one sent by the Lord. So uh, very similar in their, in their roles. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So he's introducing himself. And then two, the church of God, which is at Corinth. So he's writing to Christians to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And we looked at this last Wednesday. Set apart, consecrated, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So who is he writing to? Those saved, those sanctified, called to be saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. They're Christians. Now, and we talked about the all the first Corinthians church is steeped in issues. Go with me to chapter three. And here's the problem that's 
that kind of summarizes all of the issues in the church. So he addresses them as Christians called by God to be saints, sanctified, set apart. But then listen how he describes them also here in chapter 3. And I, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, brethren to the church, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. So evidently, they weren't too sanctified. They weren't too set apart. They weren't too consecrated. They weren't living holy lives. They weren't uh, being obedient. So this is the problem. I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. The word carnal means fleshly, sinful, worldly. And he says, you're you're babes in Christ. Verse 2, and I fed you with milk and not with solid food. For until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able to receive it. How many of you, when you got up this morning, got you a big uh, a baby bottle, put some milk in it, warmed it in the microwave, and nursed on a baby bottle this morning for your breakfast? Anybody do that? Why do you not do that? You're not a baby. And your, your, your body... Uh, now it needs more than that, and your your system can break down solid food, physical meals. And my guess is some of you probably got some coffee, and and some of you probably made some eggs or toast or some sausage, or maybe got some granola cereal and fruit if you're more healthy. But you ate something with substance, something physically uh, that would sustain you. And so the problem in this church is you've had Christians. Now several years have passed, and he said, "But you're you're still on nurse bottles. You're, you're, you you've never matured. You're that, that, and so that's the problem." And he says, "Even now you're still not able." Verse three, you're still carnal, still, which means you've never changed. You're Christians. You've been saved out of this idolatrous city and lifestyle, but you still, you've not changed. You're still carnal. And then he describes some of the problem. For where there is envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? When one of you says, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so um, there was division and strife in the church. Any of you Ever been a part of a church where that set in, that started happening? People take up sides. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Well, I think this person's right, and I think that person's right, and they're wrong, and they're wrong. And he says that division, that strife, is an expression of being worldly and carnal, immature in Christ. Let me tell you something I've learned in the church over the years, and, and spiritual warfare is real, one of the, the clearest expressions of that is when a person or a group of people in the church, pride begins to set in and they start demanding their way. When people start making demands, it's going to be my way, I'm right, everybody else is wrong, and they can have good motives, they can be sincere, they can genuinely love the Lord, and love the church, and but... But when pride takes over, 
it will start making demands. And, and it will produce division and strife. And I, I think back over the years that, that, that I have pastored the church and I've seen that. And it happens in all churches. And the reason it happens is because we're all still sinful. We're still, we're still, so we have a battle to keep our attitudes and our rights with the Lord. But over the years, whenever that's occurred, it's because people get, you know, you've heard that phrase, perception is reality. <laughs> Whatever your perception is, that's what you think reality is. And your perception may be right, your perception may be wrong. But even if your perception is totally wrong, it's still your reality. And, and so people think they're right, and they start, and when people start demanding control, wanting their way, uh, you, you, you could have problems. Um, let me add, there, there are certain things that are right and wrong in the church. And, but but even, even when, when, you, when there's issues that come, come about in the church, there's a way that those things are to be addressed prayerfully, carefully, patiently, in love. We, we, so even, even if there's things that need to be addressed, there's still a way for them to be addressed. You can be right about something that you think needs to be Aligned with scripture, something is wrong, but you can go about it the wrong way. Does that make sense? And I would add further. <laughs> Sometimes you have, to, you have to also ask yourself, are you more concerned about being right or loving the person? And there's, there's some things, you know, that you major on the majors, minor on the minors. There's some hills not, you've heard that old phrase, there's some hills not worth dying on, dying for. And so I've kind of learned over the years pastorally, uh, there's some things that, you know, not as big an issue, and, and you're better off just to love people and just continue to pray and be patient and build a relationship and then try to graduate. And then there's some things that just need to be addressed that, that are wrong, but... Being, being wise. And 1 Corinthians talks about wisdom, right? The, the wisdom that God's above. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the background to this letter. Um, Christians, they're Christians, they're genuinely saved. They're just, they're just carnal. They're just fleshly. They're just, they've never, they've never matured. Uh, do, you, do you think that that's still possible today? For a person to be saved, really saved, baptized, join the church, but just never grow, never really mature much. Just kind of stayed spiritually stymied, spiritually stagnant. Um, I, I, I think it's very possible. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, but not feeding, being fed on, as what, what Paul says, on the word, on solid food. And, and, um, Attitudes, perspectives, the way you think can, can still get really, really uh, distorted. Any, any of you ever recognize when you know your attitude's not good? I do. And I, and I still, you know, still fight that. I want to have a good attitude and, and think towards other people the way I need to think. Think towards myself the way that I need to think. Any of you ever get down on yourself, critical of yourself, and you know, and um, nothing wrong with some self-examination, but some people just beat themselves up, down on them, and critical. That's not the way God wants us to see. It's not the kind of attitude that we're to have. 
and towards people and not to always be critical, critical of everyone and everything. That's not an attitude that's pleasing. So just how do you, how do you, how do you maintain the right attitude? Well, you got to spend time with the Lord and he'll, he'll speak to you through your word and keep your heart soft and keep you sensitive to the, to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Where, um, I got a phone call this morning from a, from a guy this, just a couple minutes before 8 a.m. this morning. He said, he said, Charlie, I want to apologize to you. I said, well, what, what in the world for? And he said, well, and we were talking yesterday. He said, well, I, I kind of think went off on a tangent yesterday about some things. And he said, I just want to apologize to you. And I said, well, I, I wasn't offended, but God bless you for your, your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and for calling me this morning. He, he recognized that his attitude wasn't right. And so that's all of that. That's, that's necessity for spiritual growth. So Paul writes this. Uh, that's kind of the major issue. Uh, division. Go back to chapter 1. There's a, there's a and we'll, we'll, we'll finish with this here. Um, division. Look at verse 10. Um, the church has got division, strife, animosity, pride going on. Verse 10, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions, schisms among you. But you be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it is big, and remember, he'd received information, so he's here in Ephesus writing this letter, and I love this. It has been declared, verse 11, it's been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And the reason, you know why I like verse 11? Paul, Paul receives some information that this church has division, schism, uh, factions among you, it's divided, it's not unified in the spirit. And, and how does Paul know that? Well, somebody had given him information. And who was it? Who does he say his source of this information was? Chloe's household, whoever Chloe's household was. He names his source. Have you ever had somebody come to you and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I need to, I need to tell you something? There's some folks here that are upset at you and they're, they're not happy with this and they're not happy with that. And, and uh, every, every, have you ever had that? I have. <laughs> and I'll say, well, who is it? Oh, oh well, I can't tell you that. I, I, I told them I wouldn't tell you that. You know, my response is, well, why are they coming and talk to you? If they've got a problem, the Bible says they need to come talk to me. And and I will tell you this, after a few years of passing the church, who is talking makes a difference in my response. Right? Doesn't that, doesn't that make sense? So if there was a group of deacons here and they were all had some concerns about me, I might take that a little more, have, I want to care a little more deeply than then there's some brother here. He's in and out of church half the time. He's half time. He's never here, and he doesn't serve or do anything. And he comes in, and he's just starts makes take some pot shots at me. I, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I would if there's any truth to it. I'd I'd still want to be open to that. But what that brother says is not going to mean the same thing to me as the group of deacons. 
our group of Sunday school teachers, source matters. And so if, if somebody, and I would encourage this, all of us, if somebody comes to you complaining about another brother or sister in your Sunday school class, or they complain about somebody else in the church, our response is to be what? Hey, you need to go talk to them. Well, I was just talking to these other people so I could so I could get a little counsel. Well, maybe most of the time that's not that's not really what's going on. We 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 get upset, so we just we just talk, kind of gossip and about other people. Listen, we always need to send them to the source. Matthew eighteen, right? If your brother offends you, you go directly to them. So um, that, that's what we want to do. So I, I just love this. He, he he quotes his source just flat up. Hey. And, and I've done that with people when I've gone to talk to people and said, hey, brother, I need to talk to you, and this is what was told me by this person. It wasn't gossipy, and I want to talk to you. And, uh, and usually if you do that prayerfully and you do it in love, uh, God, God will use it and bless it and use it for, for, for spiritual growth. We just, I, I just think that's something in the church we, don't, we're, we, need, to, we need to be better disciples. To, to do that because really that's an expression of love. To go to, we'll stop there.